Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show.
This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with weather anchor Al Roker about his new memoir, You Look So Much Better in Person. We dig into deep philosophical questions such as why does Goofy wear pants but Pluto doesn't? We also discuss onset disasters at the Today Show and his mom's unique sense of humor. She would kind of sing operatic style but make up a language. And, and my friends all thought she was speaking some foreign language and singing it. You know, at the time, I thought it was highly embarrassing. But, uh, you know, I've kind of come to appreciate it. Also coming up, we learn about words used to describe leftovers. And we present a recipe for a sweet and tangy Austrian plum cake. But first, it's my interview with Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin, who have competed in hundreds of baking competitions. Their book is called The New Pie. Chris and Paul, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much. Hello. Quote, their first long-distance date was baking the same cake, the Scarlet Empress from Rose Levy Birnbaum's The Cake Bible, over the phone. Um, that sounds kind of like a quarantine date to me. But how did, how did you how did you come up with that? <laughs> well, this is Paul. So that was actually, it was my idea. So after Chris and I were introduced, he was still living in Pittsburgh. I was living in Atlanta. And... Um, we were talking about you know, a variety of things, and we, we realized we both had a very extensive cookbook collection. That was the one cookbook, the Cake Bible by Rose, that we had in common. So I, I threw it to Chris and said, well, let's have our first date. You go ahead and pick something. And I, I was picturing, oh, maybe a pound cake or something simple. He picks, of course, the Scarlet Empress. Um, and so, yeah, we spent um, uh, most of a Saturday uh, whipping eggs and, um, and making our, our two separate cakes. But, yeah, we, we got to get to know each other over the phone, eventually met in real life, and uh, got married. Okay, on to the baking. Uh, American pie crust. I'm highly opinionated about this topic, as are you. You use vinegar and baking powder in your crusts. The baking powder, you say, gives it a slightly lighter texture. What does the vinegar do? I think it makes it a little more tender. And also, if you leave it out, uh, the traditional American pie dough will start to turn gray if you don't freeze it within about a day or two. But when you add the vinegar, it keeps a more appetizing color for up to four or five days. Well, my apple pie doesn't tend to sit around that long. Exactly. Or your banana cream pie. Um, <laughs> now, this is one thing I love about your recipe. You cut in the fat a little more than most people do. It should have the texture of cornmeal. And I know a lot of books talk about big pea-sized pieces of butter. Can you just talk about cutting fat into flour? Absolutely. If a person that maybe doesn't cook as many pie doughs as us were to look at our technique, they would say, you're going to make a mealy pie dough because you're cutting in the flour too fine. And we have right. never found that to be the case. Because we use the food processor, I think we're able to have a little more control over it. Um, right. It's easier to roll out. I think having the big chunks of butter in it might be a little flakier, but there's so much of a risk of having large pockets right. of unincorporated butter that can melt out in the oven. You end up with holes. Um, you can end up with grease spots. And we also find that even though our crust is tender and flaky, it's also sturdy. You can pull a piece of pie out. You won't have to worry about it breaking. Depending on the weight of the filling, you can pick it up and eat it with your hands. It's not, it's still tender and flaky, but it's not delicate and weak. Okay, well, you got my vote. Um, Thai 
iced tea cream pie with, and here's the kicker, whipped cream ice cubes. Is this gelatin and whipped cream? Is, is that all it is, or is there some other secret to it? Yeah, it's not gelatin. Um, what we use, um, because when we've done these contests, especially with the cream pies, you really want to make sure that everything looks its best. And so we really dove through a lot of the different ways to make stabilized whipped cream, whipped cream that will stay piped and in shape for several hours. What we use is a product from the cake decorating world. Um, it's piping gel. Hmm. And a lot of people aren't familiar with it. If you ever buy a ice cream cake somewhere and it has sort of this clear colored icing on top made to look like water mm-hmm. or a golf course, that's colored piping gel. So it's a, it's a mixture. It's a modified starch corn syrup product. It doesn't really have any flavor and you don't use a ton of it. So the whipped cream ice cubes on the Thai iced tea pie, um, we take the whipped cream and piping gel, whip it up to stiff peaks, put it in a loaf pan, freeze it. After it's frozen, we take it out, cut the whipped cream into cubes, pile it up on the pie, and put it back in the fridge. Everything stays refrigerator temperature, but the ice cubes made out of whipped cream hold their shape. And so even though they look frozen, or some people actually think they're marshmallows, when you cut into it, it's just like cutting through delicious whipped cream. Do you ever get the feeling once, I mean, you have to keep coming up with more interesting versions of cakes and pies. Is there ever a moment you go like, okay, we just like, it's a step too far. Uh, (laughs) Um, I have to say, we, we have pushed the limit, I think. And I think that's one of the fun things about this book, um, because I don't, think some of these flavors have ever been seen before in pie. They're certainly not new flavors. I mean, we have a bubblegum pie. I mean, bubblegum's been around for a century, but, you know, not in a pie. I think pie is seen by a lot of people as a very traditional dessert that should be made the way pie's always been made. And our thought is, is pie, I don't think, has really yet come into its own. I think anything you could do with a cake or do with a cookie or do with any other dessert uh, you can do with pie. You guys should found the pie promotion board. <laughs> I think I think you should do a national tour. I, well, you know, that's an interesting point you make, and you're absolutely right. Pot, people don't fool around with pies. They fool around with cakes every day and, and cookies, but they don't um, – well, you do, but very few other people do it. Uh, you do cocktail pies, the Bellini. That would look particularly appealing. Oh, and that's delicious. And we, we find inspiration everywhere, especially like when we would go out to restaurants. You'd, you'd try a new cocktail and you think, wow, these flavors. I haven't had these two things together before. This might work great in a pie. And so we're constantly, we maintain these little notebooks of, of pie ideas. Unbeatable, a beet pie, grated beet pie. Uh, I don't know. Tell me why I should rush out and make an unbeatable pie. Yeah, I mean, it's a vegetable, but you have no problem making a carrot cake out of a vegetable, um, a sweet potato pie out of a vegetable. So beets, beets another one. And um, it goes so well with, um, with goat cheese, with a little bit of um, spices. Uh, it really works. So it's, it's in the same family as your pumpkin pie and your, your sweet potato pie, uh, but with that rich, earthy flavor. And I have to say, that beautiful beet color um, really makes for a spectacular pie. How are pies or cakes judged at state fairs? Every competition we've done has been different. 
Um, actually, um, the National Pie Championship has a, a 90 point scale. So I think theirs is the most comprehensive. Um, so they have things like a, what's called a pre slice score. So what the pie looks like before it's sliced, a post slice score, which is what the slice looks like after it's removed. You know, is it oozing? Is it dripping? Is it runny? And then they judge on the crust, they judge on the filling, they judge on aftertaste, and they judge on uh, creativity and originality. So if you guys go out to dinner, would you always get pie for dessert? I mean, where does pie exist on your food pyramid of desserts at the top? I love pie. Well, I wouldn't. I didn't think you were going to say you you (laughs) ate pie, but I just wondered. I mean, since you do it as almost as a living, are, are there other desserts that are things you just might order if you go out to dinner? I think out in restaurants, pie really isn't given the attention it's deserved. A lot of times it's the same key lime pie, pecan pie. Uh, you know, they're forgettable in a lot of ways, unfortunately. And Paul and I have different flavor profiles that we enjoy. Um, Paul really likes things like lemon, ginger, brown butter. I, I tend to like some things that are sweeter. I joke that I come up with baking ideas like an eight-year-old who's given $20 to shop at a gas station. <laughs> so it's we'll usually pick something that um, we'll both enjoy or, or a flavor combination that sounds new. And so pie is near the top, but ice cream for me is really right there next to it. I like a nice bowl of cold, perfectly made ice cream. Uh, Chris and Paul, thank you so much. It's been just a, a lot of fun having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin, authors of The New Pie, Modern Techniques for the Classic American Dessert. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Sarah, before we get started, you mentioned to me that you have this uh, fairly rigid schedule at night where you have a glass of wine and prep dinner and the glass of wine has to last. Do you ever do like the French aperitif or do you stick to just a glass of wine? Chris, I'm so boring. It's just straight wine. You know, occasionally I'll step out and have, you know, the other night I got takeout and they delivered a margarita. That was really exciting. But no, I love my wine. It's just so Wait, wait, wait. You ordered a takeout margarita? Really? Yeah. It was fantastic. I got a mango jalapeno and I have oh. to say, really did clean out my nasal passages. Yeah, it was uh, restorative in I, so many ways. I've never had a takeout cocktail. <laughs> I'll have to give that it a shot. It was so much fun. I wish I had one now. Okay, on to the first call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Dustin. Where are you calling from? Burbank, California. How can we help you? So I had a question about BLTs. To me, it is the ultimate summer food. Like I've done a few things in the past to play with different kinds of sauces that go on it, but I haven't gotten too creative. Or it might just be the ultimate sandwich, yeah. just as it is. But I didn't know if you guys had a had a Milk Street twist for the BLT. Well, I can give you lots of suggestions, but I think I agree with your latter comment. It's like saying how can I improve apple pie? And my answer would be, you can't. I would think a perfectly made BLT cannot be improved. But if you want a little change of pace, here's a few ideas. Uh, Sumac, you know, they're little red berries that are sort of sour. 
it's a spice. They go great on tomatoes or smoked paprika, you know, from Spain is really nice on the tomatoes. The greens, some arugula, the mayo, you know, a little harissa thrown into mayo is interesting. That'd be good. Or Sichuan peppercorns, something. I wouldn't mess with the bread, you know. I think it has to be white bread. One thing I did have, though, in northern Israel was a sort of a a pita pocket with a fried piece of halloumi cheese in it with some peppers and other things. Mm -hmm. A thin slice of halloumi quickly sautéed might be a nice addition to that. I don't know. I'll stand on tradition. If you have perfect ingredients, don't mess with it. Sarah? Well, I basically agree, but I, I have a few questions and also a thought. Do you salt the tomatoes? Like kind of as I'm assembling the sandwich, I'll just usually hit it with a sprinkle of salt and pepper. Well, let me make a suggestion. About 20 minutes ahead of time, slice your tomatoes. They should be about a third of an inch thick and sprinkle them lightly on both sides with kosher salt and put them on a rack or put them on paper towels, but let them just be salted for that 20 minutes and then pat them dry and proceed with the sandwich. If you only did that, you will be astonished. What happens is the tomatoes will just taste like so much more tomato-y. Another thing that I, I like to do, I'll make a basil mayonnaise by taking some mayonnaise, either homemade or, you know, I like Hellman's, and a little bit of lemon because Hellman's is sweet. And I'll throw it in a blender mm-hmm. with a, a ton of basil leaves. I'll let it, you know, puree. And you actually really bruise the basil and really get a ton of flavor out of it. And I love that mayonnaise in a BLT. Oh, yeah. Good idea. The other thing is I love chipotle mayo also. Or, you know, start with garlic, you know, aioli, which is garlic mayonnaise, and then put in some chipotle. Those are a few thoughts. Those are good. I will definitely, especially the basil mayo, I've never heard of that before, so I will definitely do that. Do you have any tips for buying tomatoes? Yeah, smell them. Smell the stem end, and it should smell like tomato. Well, um, great. Those are some great ideas. I'm looking forward to it. We just reminded me BLT is absolutely wonderful. It's just perfect. It's perfect, yeah. Justin, thanks. thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And you guys stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. You too. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Dawn Matson. Where are you calling from? Just outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. How can we help you today? I'm not one to own every appliance on the market, and so I don't own a food processor. Most recipes that you put together that call for one is easy to adapt, but some are not. And um, was wondering if you will ever go into the realm of providing quick guidance on recipes to do a workaround so that we don't have to have a food processor. I'm going to tell you why I love mine. I have both it and a blender. I use the blender for pureeing soups and things, so I get a really nice creamy texture. I would never use the food processor for that because it's just not as good. But here's what I use it for. I love figuring out new ways to get vegetables on the table during the work week. And one of the things I use frequently, three or four times a week, is the grating disc on my food processor. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, you peel the carrot or parsnip or, you know, whatever root vegetable it is, beets I do, and then put them through the feed tube and uh, boom, you know, one minute, 30 seconds later, you've got all these grated vegetables that you throw into a skillet and they only take three or four minutes to cook from start to finish. And then you just right. add flavorings like acid or nuts or spices or whatever. Plus, which, you know, uh, at the end of a bad day, or let's say the kids have been misbehaving, it's sort of a good way to get your aggressions out. So th- that's my, my real case for having a food processor. Now, Chris, are you worried about me yeah, now? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried about you. I mean, you need mm-hmm. a cocktail. Look, I, I think grating vegetables so that you can cook them in a skillet, I mean, that's a very particular thing, which I've never done. You should try it. But if you didn't do that, let, let's set that aside because that's very Sarah Malton. You can live without a food processor. The one thing I find it's great for is making pie pastry and making pizza dough. I make doughs in it, and I find that I, I agree with incredibly Chris, yeah. fast and easy. I don't use all those attachments. I can't even find them. They're somewhere in the basement, so I, I don't know about <laughs> that. I love using a knife. There's so much pleasure in using a knife, you know. so I'm not going to put an onion in a food processor Pestos, yeah, that's another great use. But, you know, you can do it in a mortar and pestle. It takes more time, but it tastes better. So, mm-hmm. yes, your question is, could we adapt recipes? Yeah, we could. And okay. I think you can live without one. A standing mixer for me would be more essential in a blender. Mm-hmm. But if I had to get rid mm-hmm. of one thing, it would be the food processor. And it's great for certain stuff, but you could live without it. I think, Sarah, I mean, other than the vegetables, do you use it a lot for other things? I use it for pizza dough, and I make pizza a fair amount. So, yeah, I use it for that, too. I just think the older you get in the kitchen, I think the – I mean, I love gadgets, but I find I am using fewer things. You know, I just like things that last, that are well-made, and I like the simplicity of it. I also like the physical labor of it a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a little zen in there somewhere, so – Free yourself from the food processor. I don't know. I'm with you on this one. I'm definitely with you. Yeah, and any workarounds that you can provide would be great. Yeah. I have found that knives and pastry cutters go a long way. Yeah. But every now and then I'll be stymied and I'll think, well, I guess I just can't do that recipe. It's a good point, and uh, I'll actually talk to the kitchen about it in Milk yeah. Street. It's something we need to think about. So, Dawn, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you, Dawn. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a call anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Manella from Wilmington, North Carolina. How can we help you? Well, a few weeks ago, I heard you mentioned something about sofrito, which hits close to my Puerto Rican roots. I was always taught to make it with onions and red peppers, garlic, capers, or whatever other olives in the house, and occasionally cilantro, tomato paste, and one or two Goya seasoning packets. And then certainly I would saute it well before adding it to the rice or the meat that I was working with that day. But I often felt that the flavor sometimes got lost in the end. Right. Then you had said something on the show about adding it to the food after the food was cooked, which I hadn't heard before. And I was wondering what other ingredients I could add to the sofrito to change it up for my routine. When I talked about it on the show, I was talking about a trip I took to Mexico City. And I cooked with a guy, Eduardo Garcia, who um, he makes these great beans. And at the end of two and a half hours of cooking, he threw together a sofrito in 10 minutes. 
chilies, tomatoes, peppers, onions. He threw that into the beans five minutes before serving. And I oh. asked, you know, why didn't you put it at the beginning like everybody else does? And he said, why would you do that? Because all the fresh flavors will be cooked out over two hours. So right. it was one of those, you know, slap my forehead moments. Why didn't I think of that? So I now think maybe put half the sofrito in at the beginning, but leave some for the end. You could use bell peppers, you know, you could use celery, you can use chilies, of course, any kind of pepper, tomatoes, as you said, garlic and onion, scallions, you know, anything that has a, a strong, fresh flavor. He taught me something that was extremely, you know, valuable. I mean, Sarah, what do you think? Well, I just got to ask a question, because uh, that makes complete sense. But if you add it later, do you add it raw or have you sauteed it and then added it? You would cook it like you would in French cooking or any other kind of cooking, right? I think it's a great trick, you know? Would you do it, though, in a French stew, for example? Would you hold out some of it to the end? Well, in a French stew, I think we'd be talking about a mirepoix, right? Right. Uh, Sure. I mean, although, yeah, I'd rather add other things at the end, you know, maybe more garlic, for example. Yeah, I sure would. I think it's brilliant. Manella, you mentioned adding capers. What else do you add to your sofrito? Well, it really just depends if I'm, my cilantro is growing, if I have any frozen. It spoils so quickly. Green peppers, red peppers, sometimes yellow peppers. Well, you know, you might want to try ahi dulce. It's um, a chili that just doesn't have a ton of heat, but it has some of the same flavor that you get from a habanero or a scotch bonnet. Our food editor, Matt, also makes tons of sofrito on a Sunday, like a quart mm-hmm. of it or something. And he freezes it in one cup batches, so you can just throw it in at the last minute. I used to do that too, but I felt that the fresh tasted better. So I actually stopped doing that, and what I do now is I cut up all the vegetables. I freeze them in little glad bags. I feel that that works better. I don't know. That would be a better idea. Yeah. I'll have to tell my food editor he doesn't know what he's doing. I think that's, now I've learned from Eduardo about editing it at the end, and I've learned from you to just freeze the cut of vegetables. And I'm just going back to cooking school, I guess, right, yeah. Sarah? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad I was doing something right. Yeah. Well, you know what? You never stop learning. That's true for all three of us here. Manella, thank you. Hey, no, thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from weather anchor and author Al Roker. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's my interview with Today Show co-host Al Roker. He's the author of 13 books, including his new memoir, you look so much better in person. Al, welcome to Milk Street. Well, it's good to be here, Chris. Good to uh, chat with you. You were born in Queens about the same time yes. I was. I won't mention the year. Uh, and <laughs> you said from my mother, I got a slightly twisted sense of humor. And from my dad, I got the work ethic. Uh, what was her sense of humor like? Well, it was it was a little biting. It was a little sarcastic. You know, like, for example, she 
thought it was funny, she would kind of sing operatic style, but make up a language. <laughs> and, and my friends all thought she was speaking some foreign language and singing it. You know, at the time, I thought it was highly embarrassing. But, uh, you know, I've kind of come to appreciate it. Your dad, uh, there's a great story in your book where you're going to take the driving test. Yeah, you know, it, it was one of those things where we, uh, we were go literally going for the, the road test. And he said, you know, I don't really think you're that good at your broken U-turn. Let me just see you do a, a broken U-turn. And, you know, I kind of got halfway through the, the turn. And, you know, instead of stepping on the brake, I stepped on the gas. <laughs> and my dad very quietly just said, brake, brake, brake. <laughs> As we go over the curb, we run through our neighbor's prized rhododendron bush, brake. And he never raised his voice, really. And I finally kind of snapped out of it and stepped on the brake. And he just goes, all right, again. <laughs> so... We back off the lawn over the bush, and then he said, okay, leave a note for Mr. Varane, and we leave a note, and then I went and took my driver's test, and, and by the way, passed. And then afterwards, you know, the next day, patched up his lawn, went to the nursery, uh, bought a new bush, planted it, and uh, apologized. One of your themes in your book is don't give up. Your first job as a weatherman, you say in the book, I wouldn't stop until, A, I got the job, or B, when they issued a restraining order against me. So, so you were <laughs> relentless. <laughs> and as you said, you got the job not because you were necessarily the best candidate, but you just hustled more. I hustled more, and like in the case of, of my first uh, job doing weekend weather, I was cheap. I was a college student. You know, the, the news director said I can afford a drunk or a college student. <laughs> and uh, I was making $10 a newscast. Uh, so... You know, but it, uh, but I I kept calling him, kept calling him, and then and, and he he turned out to be a terrific mentor. Uh, you've done a lot of interesting segments over the years, uh, but I particularly love the Daniel Blue episode where you go work in the restaurant one night, and someone comes up to you and says, "See that expletive entree right there? If you don't get that out now, I'm going to stab you in the eye with a bony knife." <laughs> yeah, you know, because it's the epitome of civility and gentility, fine dining at its, at its best, very quiet, hushed tones. And then you're, you go in the kitchen, and I'm just stunned they're not bringing people out in body bags. You know, it's <laughs> like, and I was, I was petrified. You know, I was, you know, we did this segment where Danielle Balud was going to do the weather, and I would step in as a chef, you know, on a Friday night pre-theater dinner. Huh. It was like, what was I thinking, you know? <laughs> uh, let's talk about when things go wrong. Um, I did a segment on the Today Show years ago. I almost burned down the set, I remember. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, but, but you did. Yes. Yeah, you do remember. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Al. That's terrific. Yes. Um, it's a famous clip. It's hard to forget. Uh, you had one where you're supposed to pull out <laughs> the finished dish from the oven, and there was nothing there except a rancid piece of meat from Friday before or something. Yeah, they, they, you know, it, you know, it, it's no secret that we do what they call the swap. You know, the the chef that comes in, you know, they they create a finished version so that when the chef is done prepping it, it's like ta-da! You know, you reach into the oven and magically it appears as a finished dish. Well, 
you know, sometimes we're just rushing so much and they're zipping things on and on. They had not put the finished version in and, in fact, had not even looked in the oven from the Friday show. And it was a chicken dish. Oh, no. And... And I go and I, you know, you're keeping eye contact with the camera. Right. So you kind of open the door. You know where, where everything yeah. is. And you just reach in and pull it out. Ta-da! <laughs> Yikes! What the hell is that? Uh, you, you also, somewhat like me, don't like empty conversation. And when you have to go to large gatherings and parties, you give some advice. You say, simply stand at the edge of the nearest group of people. Well, you know, here's the thing. Most people don't really care what you have to say. And so I find if you stand on the periphery, every now and then just fire in a question. Uh, and, and then they start talking. And then you back away, backwards though. So people still see you, but you are slowly receding in the distance. But they can still see you. So they, they, they get the impression you're still there. But you said, you also said in the book, though, you said, if all else fails, simply resort to this gem. What's your favorite sandwich? <laughs> yeah, you know, because everybody's got one. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of those things that I, I don't care who you are. I don't know how high and mighty you are. Everybody likes a sandwich. Two of my guilty pleasures are a grilled cheese on white bread, and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah, I... Yeah. I now, and, and not that artisanal peanut butter. You know, we're talking <laughs> Skippy or Jif, you know, and some Smucker's strawberry jam, and I'm, I'm, I'm good. You also are very... You've written books about it. Uh, you take fatherhood and family very seriously. Your own parents died when they were on the young side, I think. Uh, yes. The, the song, We Will Raise Him Up, uh, means a lot to you. Uh, Could you just talk about that? Yeah, you know, it's it's usually sung at Easter, and uh, it was one of my mother's favorite hymns. And at church, you know, when we would sing it, she would, you know, everybody raises their, their arms up. Right. And uh, that's one of my enduring images of my mother. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, I've gotten better. This past Easter, I did not cry, actually. But it's... Um, and, and I've been thinking about them a lot lately. Uh, um, and as you mentioned, my dad died when he was 69. I'm going to be 66 this August. And I realized at this point, my dad had really actually only three Father's Days left, hmm. which he did not know. Right. And so I, I've realized what I want are just more Father's Days. You know, when you're 50... You kind of think, oh, my life's half over. Right. And then when you hit 60 and above, you realize, hey, wait, it's way more than half over. That's true. <laughs> so, That's true. Yeah, you're right. 50, yeah. you go like, I got time, man. And you hit 60, yeah. you go like, eh, well, uh, maybe, uh, maybe. Maybe not so much. Not so much. You know, because what are the odds that you're going to hit that Smucker's jar? I don't know. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you, uh, you recently spoke about being black in America. And you said, I don't breathe a sigh of relief until Nick, your son, uh, walks in that door. Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he's almost 18. And uh, you know, he's a big kid. You know, he's got some, some special needs, but he's, he's a terrific athlete and uh, just a, an all-around funny kid. But 
I, I don't know. You know, when he takes the subway to high school. Right. And you don't know what's going to happen. You know, could somebody bump him? Could he, somebody take, the, you know, something he does the wrong way? Some of his friends decide to jump a turnstile just for fun. Right. Well, you know, he's, he's one of only a few black kids in the school. Right. Well, you know, he's probably going to be the one singled out. Right. So a few years ago, you did some uh, research about where your family is from and you ended up going to Dakar in Senegal. Yes. Uh, what was it like being there? You know, I saw, I saw people who looked like my dad and my grandmother. I saw a, a, a population of people that talked a lot of trash, talked a lot of smack, uh, loved a, a good laugh. And, and the, these were all things I saw in my, my, my father's family. I, I can't even describe the feeling. It's 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 like inner goosebumps, right. you know. And and standing in front of a tree, not necessarily the very village that my ancestors came from, but the the region, and you're standing at a tree that's like 900 years old, right. uh, and it's the the communal meeting place of that village. It really it touches you. You also ask some deep philosophical questions in your book, like, I like this one, why does Goofy wear pants and drive a car and Pluto gets terrorized by Chip and Dale? I never thought, like, why is one of them wearing pants and one isn't, right? You know, these were deep, meaningful questions my friends and I would discuss in high school. It's shocking to me that we never went to prom. Like, or, or Woody Woodpecker. Why, in some cartoons, he was literally the size of a bird. In others, he was the size of a small boy. It never made sense. It's like, make up your mind. Why do cartoon characters wear gloves? Why does Yogi Bear wear a tie and no shirt? I know. The, the problem with this book is now you've implanted these questions in me, <laughs> and I'm just not going to sleep well anymore. That's all there is to it. Uh, you said in your book uh, that you're okay with being number two. In fact, in some ways, you enjoy that role. Could you explain what that means? Well, you know, uh, I always remember, I interviewed Ed McMahon a number of times, and people who don't remember, he was the sidekick to, uh, still, I think, who the, the king of late night was Johnny Carson. And, uh, you know, he was, he was the second banana. He was the sidekick. Uh, and, and, and Willard uh, was kind of like second banana on the Today Show. Uh, the weather person is not one of the main people. But he said, look, you know, you can make a very good living being the second banana. And in fact, in some ways, it's easier because you don't have to carry the burden. Right. But you can still be yourself. You can still do terrific work. And and so many people, I think, get caught up in being number one, being the top dog. You don't have to be. You, know, you can still do wonderful things. And in fact, in some ways, do more things because you don't have people watching your every move. Yeah, and your career probably is longer and longer lasting uh, as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm quite fine with that. Al Roker, it's been uh, an honor, a privilege, and it's also been just a lot of fun having you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, Chris, it's always a good time when I'm with you. Thanks so much. That was Al Roker. His new memoir is called You Look So Much Better in Person. True Stories of Absurdity and Success. I first met Al Roker on the set of The Today Show, 
when we both did a Passover cooking segment. He struck me at the time as an avuncular, hell-fellow, well-met type of guy. But over time, I realized that Al's also deeply thoughtful. He's driven, he's hardworking, and also philosophical. He wonders why cartoon characters wear gloves, and then in the next moment, he remembers traveling to Senegal in search of his ancestors. Al, we hardly know you. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Austrian plum cake. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You know, almost every summer we go to Salzburg because we have family there. My wife does. Her mother actually grew up in Salzburg. There's a little cafe. It's not far from the Hotel Soccer, right on the river. And it has amazing desserts. I mean, 10 layers, 15 layers. These torts are just absolutely amazing. And they also have some more rustic cakes, like a plum cake, for example. And these are made often with rye flour or sort of darker flours. They're yeasty cakes sometimes a little bit better for wintry days. But we thought we'd take that concept of a plum cake, simplify it, and bring it back to Milk Street. So how do we get started? So at Milk Street, we wanted to make this even simpler. And so instead of using a yeasted cake like you had talked about, Chris, we decided to use baking powder as the leavener. And we also increased the butter and used what's called a reverse creaming method. So rather than creaming your butter and sugar together, you actually coat the flour in the butter, and that keeps gluten from developing to keep your cake nice and tender. So then you just add the rest of the ingredients, the eggs, etc., to the bowl? That's right. So it's a pretty standard cake from there. You do want to make sure that you're using softened butter because cold butter won't blend well into those ingredients, which is really important when you're doing reverse creaming. And then, of course, we move on to the plums. So with the plums, am I going to have to be like a, a pastry chef to do this, or can I just throw them in the batter or what? You don't need to be a pastry chef. We're not that fussy, Chris. You're going to use about a pound and a quarter of plums, and you're going to just quarter them and then arrange them on the batter in concentric circles. But you could use red plums or black plums. Just make sure that they're ripe but not mushy because you don't want the cake to be too wet. So you're saying that I could do this? You could do this. <laughs> so if I can do it, anybody can do it? That's right. So this bakes in, what, a moderate oven for, what, 45 minutes or something? That's right, Chris. So it bakes at 325 for over an hour, and you just want to make sure the batter is fully cooked. So when you test that the batter is done, you want to make sure there's no wet crumbs that are clinging to the toothpick. Yeah, we did find that because the top layer has a lot of plums in it, it sort of shields the middle of the cake from the heat of the oven. So you really have to thoroughly cook this, otherwise the inside is going to be undercooked, right? That's right. Catherine, thank you very much. Austrian plum cake brought home to Milk Street. It's no longer a winter dessert. It's actually great for summer. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. For the recipe for Austrian plum cake, go to 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett give us a language lesson on the topic of leftovers. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Allison Case. How can we help you today? I have been making um, hollows, but my hollows have really not been coming out very fluffy. They've been pretty dense. They're just not as fluffy as the ones I buy in the bakery. Let's start with uh, whose recipe are you using? Um, so I've actually bounced around a little bit. I was using the New York Times recipe, but it didn't have a three rise. Um, it wasn't three rises for the dough. And now I've been using a three rise hollow, and that has definitely helped the situation. Now, does this recipe that you're using have you weigh or measure the flour? Measure. Yeah, that could be the problem right there. I would find a recipe that has weights. Uh, what kind of flour are you using? So I've actually been using the King Arthur flour. All-purpose or bread flour? You know, I was using all-purpose because I didn't realize there was a bread flour. I'm a novice, if you can't tell. Don't worry about it. Then I realized there's a bread flour, and I was thinking maybe I should switch to the bread flour since I am making bread. And then my last question is, what kind of yeast are you using? I am using active yeast. And you put a little pinch of sugar in there to see if it's alive before you do anything else with it. exactly. You might want to try, again, King Arthur flour. They have something called safe instant yeast. The thing about instant yeast is it's more alive. And now I really need to let Chris have a second. I'm sure he's got all sorts of ideas. I have a couple questions. Uh, First of all, (laughs) if I have a problem with a recipe, I often go to Serious Eats. I really like their website, and I know they do okay. have a hollow recipe there. So if you're using all-purpose, not bread flour, the ratio of liquid to flour will be wrong because different types of flour absorb liquid differently. If the recipe was designed for bread flour and used all-purpose, that's going to mess up your amount of liquid. How do you know when the dough has risen properly? You know, I don't know. The recipe that I started using had me put it in the oven for the first rise and then don't turn the oven on. Instead, just put some boiling water underneath right. it and then right. let it sit there for an hour. 
I actually ended up falling asleep. So I didn't get it till the next morning. So that was different than the recipe said. It said an hour and it was 12 hours. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a change. Yeah, that that would be different. I know. Okay. I know. But you have made this recipe. The proportion of liquid to flour is probably off. But more importantly, it's not rising enough. Let me give you a suggestion. Get a straight-sided plastic bucket. And when you put the dough in for the first rise, mark it with a magic marker on the outside to the top level and then measure that so you know when it's doubled because it sounds Mm -hmm. to me like it's not rising properly. Okay. It may be because there may not be enough liquid in the recipe, for example, which might make it rise slower. So, you know, getting the right amount of rise in the first step is really critical. Okay, thank you. One last thing. Baking it at what temperature? I am baking it at 350. Yeah, that sounds a little low. How do you know when it's done? It's done when I turn it over and then I knock on it and it sounds hollow. I would buy an InstaRead thermometer, if a digital thermometer. Hala is ready. The center should be about 185. So you might be overbaking it too, which would make it harder. Okay. So those are my thoughts. Sarah? Yeah, no, I okay. agree. But I, I'd say get yourself a good recipe to begin with. But I applaud you. You know, trial and error is, is how we learn. So good for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. the help. Sure. Yes. Good luck. Allison, thanks. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please call us anytime at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jeanette from Fleming, Ohio. How can we help you? I have a friend who makes snickerdoodles that are so good, and mine turn out flat and crunchy. And I just wondered if there's something I could do differently. Tell me about the basic method. What are you doing? We both use the same recipe. And how do you put them together? Well, I cream the sugar and the butter and the shortening. How are you creaming the butter and the sugar? I have a stand mixer. How long are you creaming it for? Probably three or four minutes. It's really light and fluffy by the time it gets creamed? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So then you add the eggs one at a time, right? Well, probably not. Uh, (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a little pause there, so Uh I knew knew you were in trouble. (laughs) So what you want to do is add an egg one at a time and beat for a full 20 seconds before you add the second egg. Then it'll incorporate properly. It sounds like a lot of time, but it's really worth it. One of the problems could be you're not incorporating enough air into the creamed sugar butter mixture. I forgot to ask, what temperature is your butter when you start the creaming? I always let it sit out until it's soft. When you say soft, you mean spreadably soft, malleable soft? Spreadable soft. Yeah, okay, there we go, bingo. The butter has to be like 65 to 67 degrees. It has to be not spreadable soft because it won't be able to incorporate the air It has to be firm. If you press into it, you can still press into it, but it needs to be firm. And I think that's yeah, that's the problem right there. I think. Oh, okay. Can I ask one other question? Sure. How old is your baking soda? Probably several months by now. (laughs) Well, then it's fine. So that's not. I agree with Chris a hundred percent. I think the issue is the butter was just too warm. So okay. One other thing, though, I've made snickerdoodles for years, and I got to tell you. 
the texture has to be just right. So there's no shame in not having the perfect snickerdoodle. They are <laughs> tricky. They, they are very tricky cookies. Yeah. Make sure you're not over baking them because that can make yeah. cookies uh, get too crispy also. Maybe take yeah. them out a little sooner than you've been taking them out. I do try and be very careful with that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I enjoy the show, and it's interesting to know that little bit of amount of temperature yeah. can make such a difference. So. Yes. It's one of those key things. All right, Jeanette. All right, thank you. Jeanette, thanks for calling. Take care. Uh-huh. Enjoy Bye. the show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. My name is Barbara Wurzel, and here's my tip. As a coffee drinker, I'm spoiled. Our local coffee roaster provides whole beans that we grind ourselves whenever there's coffee left over, especially in the summer. I freeze the leftover into coffee cubes. Later on, I can add those coffee cubes to seltzer or iced coffee for extra flavor. That's my tip. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. They're hosts of Away With Words, the public radio show about language. Grant and Martha, welcome back to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Chris. So uh, what words have you up at night this week? Well, I've been thinking about leftovers, but I've been thinking about the language related to food that we reuse or repurpose. Hmm. And there, there's a ton of stuff here. Martha's got a ton of stuff that she knows. One of the words that she used to use for her blog comes to mind right away. Martha's ort. Oh, yeah, that's O-R-T. And probably your cruciverbalist yeah. uh, listeners know this term because it's it's a handy word in crossword puzzles if you're talking about a, a three-letter clue, ort or, or orts, O-R-T-S, which means leftovers. Uh, and it goes back hmm. to an old word that may have to do with uh, fodder for animals. Ort was a name for a grain of some kind? Well, it's the fodder that they chose not to eat oh. uh, or that they haven't eaten. So you, animals are messy when they eat. So it's the stuff that falls out of the, uh, the manger or the hay or something on the side. But I'm also thinking about the word leftovers itself. The leftovers isn't really that old of a word. We used to use two other words to talk about leftovers in English. Well, we used to call them relics, just like the word that you might talk hmm. about uh, antiques or something that you find in a an ancient tomb in the desert. The relics dates from about 1500s, but it died out by the 1900s, and it's uh, related to the similar French word meaning uh, remains or something left behind. But before relics, they were called relief. Relief dates from the 1300s to the 1500s from one meaning of a French verb having to do with taking away or picking up. It's about what you do at the end of the meal. What's left over has to be picked up and put away. So Tuesday night we're going to have relics or, <laughs> or relief for dinner? Is that what that is? Yeah, I, I don't think either one of those fly because those old meanings just don't overlap well enough. People say, I didn't know what you mean. People would be utterly confused. But you could tell the family that you're going to have orts and slarts. 
S L A R T slart is an like old. I do too. Uh, I'm not sure of the etymology of that, but it's an it's an old word that means leftovers or scraps. D H Lawrence was fond of that term. Yeah, he used it a couple times in his works. Mm-hmm. Do, do do guys start to think that like language was so much more expressive in the past, or have we come up? In the food world, have we come up with equally scrumptious terms for things like leftovers? <laughs> no, all language is really exciting. It's like knowing how a magician does a trick. Right? I think orts and slarts have leftover beat any day of the week, <laughs> no matter how you look at it. Ord and slart is definitely my next cookbook, and I'll give you a credit right on the first page. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure, Chris. Great talking with you. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clack. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.